We are going to be um, going through the first two chapters of Matthew during Advent, and then uh, after Advent and, and on, on into next year, we're going to keep going through Matthew um, in the rest of the winter and the spring. So if you want to go ahead and start reading through the whole book, I would encourage you to um, and uh, get a, a good feel for it uh, so that God might um, speak to you clearly as we continue to go through it over the next, uh, over the next six months or so. But uh, specifically, we're, we're starting in the first, uh, first couple chapters. We're going to look at uh, Matthew 1. I think verses 1 to 16 are printed in your, in your uh, bulletin, but I'm going to go ahead and read 17 as well. Um, just to, to give you a little bit of background, if you're unaware, Matthew was written by one of Jesus' disciples, and uh, it was Matthew the tax collector who wrote this. And, um, and it seems like the target audience of this book was uh, the Jews, because Matthew makes a lot of references to ways that the Scripture, the Old Testament, has been fulfilled. He talks a lot about things being fulfilled more in this gospel than the other gospels. So it seems like he's talking to Jewish people who would know the Old Testament. Um, and uh, and he's, he's basically writing to them and, and to anybody who'd read the book in order to, to introduce them to Jesus, to help them to know who Jesus is and why he has come and why he is relevant and important, why we need him, um, particularly for the Jewish people, why he is the one that God has promised to give life and hope and peace. And, and we're going to look at the, this first passage in chapter 1 is the genealogy of Jesus. It's his family tree. It's, it's basically a list of names, okay? A lot of us would be tempted to just kind of like skim over this sort of thing in the Bible, being like, what on earth does this have to, to teach me? What relevance does this have for me? But I, I assure you it has, it has relevance. It absolutely does. Um, and uh, as, as Matthew, Matthew has it here for a purpose, and as he gets ready to introduce us to Jesus, to, to talk about his birth and, and his life, he, these are some things in the genealogy, there are some unique things about the genealogy that teach us about who Jesus is and why he's going to come to help us prepare to meet him, okay? And so that's appropriate as we think about Advent, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the coming of Jesus. What are some things that we need to think about as we prepare? So listen to God's word. As I read from Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, 
And Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And here's verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that it is living and active. That your spirit works through your word to shape us and mature us and grow us. Father, we pray that you would use your word this morning to challenge us, to encourage us and comfort us, to help us to prepare to interact with you more meaningfully. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you guys probably love it. Some of you may hate it. But uh, one of my kids' favorite movies and my favorite Christmas movies is Elf. I've talked about the movie Elf before. Um, But if you aren't familiar with the movie, it's about this uh, baby who lives in an orphanage who kind of stows away in Santa's sack of gifts one Christmas and is taken back to the North Pole accidentally. And once he's at the North Pole, he, he grows up there and he's raised by elves. So he's a human raised by elves and he grows up thinking that he's an elf. But eventually, you know, when he's like, he can't do any of the other things that the elves do really very easily, and he's like three times as tall as any other elf, he comes to realize that he's not an elf. And and they break the news to him that he's actually a human, you know. And he actually has a father in New York City. And so the movie then becomes about him making this pilgrimage to New York City to meet his father. But before he goes to, to New York City, Santa stops him and he says, there's a few things you need to know before you go, okay? And among those things, he says, okay, if you see gum on the street, it's not free candy. Don't pick it up, okay? And he says, you know, in New York City, there's like, there's like 50 Ray's Pizza that claim to be the original one, but the original one is on 11th Street, Santa tells him. Um, <laughs> then, then the one other really crucial thing that he tells him, he says, okay, before you meet your dad, you need to know this. Before you meet your dad, you, you absolutely have to know that your dad is on the naughty list. <laughs> and at that news, Buddy the Elf just is shattered. Like he screams, he, he like passes out, I think. He, he can't handle the fact that his father is on the naughty list. But Santa thought it was crucial for him to know that information so that he would be prepared when he met his father to actually interact with him in a way that, that he'd be able to interact with him, you know? And, uh, you know, I think something similar is going on here with the genealogy of Jesus. You know, Matthew's goal here in the book of Matthew is to introduce the reader to Jesus, the one who has been promised to the people of Israel. His goal here is to introduce the people who read this to the son of David, right? He says it explicitly here. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of David is the one that, that all the people that had been promised, the one that, that the descendant that would sit on the throne of David forever and reign over his people and give them victory and peace and life. 
This is the promised son of David, the one that, that God had promised who would come and be the answer to all of the people's heartbreak and misery. And so he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, this is the one that God had promised. He, he said it, says it explicitly. He also says it subtly. This is why I wanted to read verse 17. In verse 17, he talks about how um, the generations between Abraham and David are 14, and from David to the deportation of Babylon is 14, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ is 14. Why does he make a point of saying it's 14 generations between all of these, you know, in these different sections? The reality is it's, it's it literally, uh, Matthew actually skips over some people, and it's not 14 between each one. So he puts, he makes it into 14 for a reason. Why does he do that? Um, a lot of people would, would suggest that it's, it's, it's probably a, mnemon, a mnemonic device, you know, a, a something to help people memorize this list. You know, if you have things grouped into the same number, 14, it's maybe easier to memorize, be like, oh, I'm missing one, or, you know. Um, I think there's, there's also another reason that he makes it 14. Um, you know how we use Roman numerals um, to, to refer to numbers sometimes? We have letters that refer to numbers. Um, back in those times, they would use letters of the Hebrew alphabet to refer to numbers as well. And the number 14 would be, the letters you would use to, to, uh, to signify the number 14 were the, basically the, the Hebrew equivalent of DVD, David. And so I think there's also this kind of subtle underlying statement that this, is, this genealogy is all about what I've promised to you that would come, come forth from the line of David. This is the son of David, the one who is the answer, the one that you need to trust in, the one that you need to, to hope in, Okay. And, and then in the midst of this, though, there, there are some unique things, as I said before, about this genealogy um, where, where he's saying, I, these are some things you need to, to notice about the son of David who is coming, about the one you need to trust in. These are some things that you need to notice, that you need to, to, to recognize as you prepare to interact with him, okay, as we continue to read. Um, and so the first thing is that this, this genealogy tells us that we need to prepare to meet somebody who's going to see us. We need to prepare to meet somebody who's going to see us. What do I mean by that? Well, one of the unusual things about this genealogy compared to other genealogies of the times is that it includes people in here that normally would not be mentioned. It includes people in here that would normally be invisible to the normal world. It actually includes five women in here. Normally in a genealogy, you wouldn't mention women. You would only mention the men and the fathers back in those days. And the women would be all but invisible. And yet here, what's really unique about this genealogy is that there's actually four women mentioned, right? There's, there's Tamar, there's Rahab, there's Ruth, there's Uriah's wife, that's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and then there's Mary. And so it's, it's interesting. What, what this, I think, highlights is, is a theme that, that you see throughout the life of Jesus, is that he sees those who are often overlooked, who, who are marginalized, who are pushed aside. He sees those who are often invisible to the rest of the world. Like, that's a, one of the themes of his, his ministry is, is really an elevation of the treatment of women at the time, right? He treated women as significant and valuable. He saw them, and he, he raised their status at the time in a real way, right? He saw women in a way that other people didn't. He treated women as, as having value and power in a way that the rest of the world didn't. 
And, and so that's one of the things you see here in this genealogy, that this, this person, this, the son of David, this one who was coming, would be one who would see those who are often invisible. Um, right? He, he saw the, the leper and the lame. He, he was constantly seeing people who, you know, the, Matthew knew this as well as anybody. He was a tax collector, a person that many people would, would, would avoid, many Jewish people would avoid, and they hated him. And yet Jesus saw him, and he said, come, follow me. Right? Um, he spent a lot of time with those who were sinners, considered sinners by the world, people that, that people would look past and overlook. And so Jesus was a person who, who saw those who were invisible, who felt like they weren't seen by the rest of the world. If you want to get to know Jesus a little better this Advent, know that you are important to him, no matter how you might feel the rest of the world maybe doesn't notice you. No matter how, might, how you might feel, you aren't really worthy of being noticed. Maybe some of us have struggled with feeling like any, it, it really matters if anybody notices us. Jesus sees you, and Jesus cares about you. Have you ever been in a room with somebody or talking with somebody who like, was so genuine and so like attentive to you, like just really locked in on you, like even in the midst of a crowd and you're having a conversation with this person and you feel like, this person really is treating you as if you're the only person that matters in the room right then. Have you ever been in a room with somebody like that? I know my, my mom was a lot like that, if any of you guys remember my mom. Um, when you feel like when you were talking to her, like you were the only person that mattered to her at the moment. That's what Jesus is like. You're the only person that matters to him as he sees you. You are valuable, you are significant. And so how do we prepare to meet a person who sees us like that? How do we prepare to meet a person who sees us like that? Well, I would say the way that we prepare to meet a person who sees us is to, to actually work on just being ourselves. We have to be ourselves. Um, that might not sound like rocket science to any of you, but actually it's something that we probably all struggle with just being ourselves. A lot of us feel like we have to perform for others. We have to um, be interesting enough for people to notice us. We have to um, kind of like make ourselves stand out. Or maybe we have to be careful about saying something that will make people like ignore us or step past us. But as it, as, as it, as it comes to just being with Jesus, he finds you incredibly interesting just as you are. He sees you just as you are. And he delights in you. And he loves you. He couldn't be more interested in you. The real you. Uh, not the you that you think you need to be. You know, as you look around, you'll be like, I need to be like that person. He sees you and he delights in you. And so we need to work on actually being ourselves with him. Being open and honest with him cares about what you're stressed out about. He cares about what you're excited about. He cares about what you're um, hurting about. He cares. He sees you. He sees you. So that's the first thing that Matthew, I think, wants us to notice, is that this son of David, the one who is promised, the one who is coming, sees those who often feel as if they're invisible. Um, second, I think uh, we need to be prepared to meet somebody who's going to surprise us. 
We need to be prepared to meet somebody who's going to surprise us. Again, the, the women being here in this gene- genealogy is a signal that this isn't your normal run-of-the-mill genealogy about a normal person. This person, this Jesus, isn't so- simply going to fulfill everybody's expectations of him. He's going to surprise us. In verse 1, it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, that, that word Christ, we talk about this um, regularly, if you haven't heard this before. It's not just Jesus' name. It's not just his last name. It's actually a title. The word Christ is a Greek word that is uh, kind of equivalent to the, the, the Jewish word Messiah, which means God's chosen one, the anointed one. And so the fact that we, we call him Jesus Christ is, is emphasizing the fact that Jesus is God's chosen one. Let me emphasize that. It's God's chosen one, not ours. So implied in that understanding that, that Jesus is the chosen one of God means that he's not going to, to, to meet all of our demands and expectations. He's going to be He's going to surprise us. He's going to, he's going to care about things that maybe we don't care about. He's going to expect things from us that we wouldn't necessarily expect of ourselves. He's going to surprise us. He was, as, as, and you see that throughout his, his entire life, he was constantly surprising people, wasn't he? I mean, even as a child, he surprised his parents when he stayed back in Jerusalem, you know, and they left, and then they panicked. They're like, where's Jesus? And they had to go back and find him in the temple. He was surprising them even then. But then as he got older, right, he was surprising the teachers of the law, caring about things that they didn't think he should be caring about, hanging out with people they didn't think he should be hanging out with, doing things they didn't think he should be doing. He was constantly surprising them. He surprised a lot of people, especially even his own disciples, you know, about the fact that, that he, he didn't come in order to be this incredible, powerful military leader, but to address something more serious and deeper to address their own sin and the problem of their, their broken relationship with God. He surprised everyone when he basically walked into a trap set for him and, and allowed himself to be hung on a cross. And he surprised everyone by not staying dead. His life was just one surprise after another. He is the chosen one of God. He's, he's not the chosen one of man. And so we need to um, especially as we, as we approach Christmas and celebrate Christmas that has all of these things that we're, you know, we've, we've done for our entire lives and all these traditions and all, we, you know, all these stories that we talk about Jesus, we might think we have him all figured out. We need to be prepared to be surprised by him. We need to be really careful that we don't assume we have him all figured out. How do you prepare to get to know someone who's a constant surprise? You have to keep an open mind about him. You have to keep an open mind about what he is like, about what he cares about, about what he might want from you, about what he might want to do in your life. Now, instead of life going exactly the way that I want it to, we need to plan on him disrupting our lives and saying, nope, we're going to do this instead. We need, to, we need to hold the things that, that we hold on to with really loose grip. Say, Jesus, I'm just going to trust you no matter how life might go, you know, a different way than I expected to. We need to be prepared to be surprised. Um, lastly, we need to be prepared to be 
saved. Okay, so we need to prepare to be seen, prepare to be surprised, and be prepared to be saved. And in the first verse, Matthew tells us this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. As we will find out in next week's passage, they name him Jesus. God says, God tells Joseph to name him Jesus. Why? Because he is going to save his people from their sins. Jesus sounds like the Hebrew for God saves. That is the whole point of Jesus coming and being born. That is the whole point of Jesus growing up and dying on a cross. That is the whole point of Jesus rising from the dead is to save his people. To save his people from the the consequences of our sin, from the guilt of our sin, from the power of our sin. That is why he came, in order to save us. How do you prepare to meet someone who's going to save you? How do you prepare to meet somebody who's going to save you? Well, I can think of two things for sure off the top of my head. Number one, in order to prepare to, to meet somebody who's going to save you, you, you have to actually believe that you need saving. <laughs> you know, that's, that's something that maybe some of us struggle to believe, that we're really all that bad, that we really need forgiveness from God, that, that we really have a, a brokenness within us that, that keeps us from becoming who we are meant to be. Um, that's the first thing. You need to admit that you need to be saved. You need to admit that you're actually a lot worse off than you would like to admit. That your heart is a lot uglier. That your heart is a lot more self-centered. That you're, heart, that, that you're a lot more apathetic than you should be. That you're not as compassionate as you should be. That you're not as thoughtful and sensitive as you should be. That you don't think of God as you should. We need to admit that we're sinners. There's all sorts of people in this family tree here as you read through this. And you guys probably recognized a number of the names, a number of the names you might not have recognized at all. But, um, but any of the names you recognize, um, I, I would guess if you, if you know a little bit about their lives, you know that they're, you know, there's there's you know, great well-known heroes in, in, in the history of Israel. And then there's, there's kind of real scoundrels and, and, and you know, bad people. There's, there's, uh, there's people who are, who are very well-known and people who aren't very well-known. Again, there's men and there's women. There's people who are wealthy. There's people who are just regular carpenters here, right? There, there are all sorts of different people. But the one thing that they all have in common is that they're all a mess. You realize that? They're all a mess, you know, even just starting with the very first name on the list, you got Abraham, right? Abraham, the, the father of all Israel, the one that God came and, and promised that he was going to make him into a great nation and, and, and demonstrated this incredible faith. But if you just read a little bit of Abraham's life, you see that, that he was a mess. Um, you see, as, as he traveled to another country, the way that he, he quickly, so quickly just said, no, that's not my wife, that's, that's just my sister, and he kind of gave up his wife for the king of that land. You're like, ah, man, that's kind of cringy. But, you know, as, as you go on the list, you know, you see Judah and the way that he behaved, and you're like, ah, man. And you keep going down, and, and it, but eventually you, you're like, oh, finally we've reached David, right? David, the, the one great hero in all of Israel's history, the greatest king of all, the one who had a heart after God's own heart, Right? He was more of a mess than any of them. Or at least we know more about his mess than any of them, right? As he committed adultery. Very possibly rape. As he committed murder. 
as he tried to cover up his crimes and deceived others, as he betrayed a close friend of his. You're just like, ah. Like the more you read, then you get into these other kings, and the other kings are just awful. You know, there's some good ones, but then there's, there's a lot of awful ones in here that led the people of Israel to worship idols and, and just abandon God. And you're just like, as, as, a, as a Jewish peer, person is reading through this list, um, they probably started to, to cringe a little bit, but as they went on, it just got worse and worse and worse. And the, by the end, you're, you're just making like the ugliest face you could possibly make because you know that, that this is just a list of, of just ugly people. But this is the point. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the one who saves. This is why he came in order to save these people. And this is why he came in order to save you and me. Because if we're honest, our lives aren't any less cringeworthy than theirs. We are just as much of a mess. And we need his, his forgiveness. We need his cleansing. We need his sacrifice for us. We need him to save us. But also, we, we don't, we're not only in order to prepare to be saved, we don't just need to, to, to admit that we need to be saved. We also, I think I would say, I would say we need to relax. We need to relax. What I mean by that is if, if you see somebody like drowning in the ocean or something like that, what are they often doing when they're drowning? They're, they're like flailing around, just trying to do anything to try to stay afloat, right? Their arms are just everywhere. Just, there's water splashing everywhere. And a lifeguard, when they swim out to the person, if that person just continues to flail around, what are they going to do? They're going to like elbow the lifeguard in the face. They're going to they're make it hard for the lifeguard to actually save them, aren't they? The safest thing, the best thing they can do is just relax and go limp and just listen to what the lifeguard tells them to do and just rest in the lifeguard's arms, right? They need to stop trying to save themselves. And so in order to prepare ourselves to be saved, what do we need to do? We need to stop trying to save ourselves as well. We need to stop trying to, to think that, that if I can just be good enough, then God will be satisfied with me. God will love me. My life will be worth something. If I can just try to be kind enough, if I can just try to obey enough rules, I need to work at just going limp and just trusting that Jesus is strong enough for me to rescue me, to provide a, a way for me to be forgiven by God and, 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 and reunited with him, reconciled with him. I need to admit that I, I'm a sinner. I need to, to relax. I need to go limp. But as we think about Jesus saving us and how we should prepare for that, it's really helpful to see the impact of Jesus on his family tree and their impact on him as you read this passage. Okay, um, Think about this. Matthew announces, okay, here's the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Okay, Here's the family tree of of Jesus. And then he goes through this list, this list of people, some of whom are downright scandalous for Jesus to be associated with, right? So as you read through this list and you get to the end, you know, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ, there might be some who read this list and they're like, oh, it, how can we possibly be willing to, to associate the name of the Messiah, the name of Jesus Christ, the one who would save, save us? How can we associate his name with these people? Because, like, putting these people, like, naming these people as the people in his family tree kind of puts a stain on his reputation, doesn't it? To associate him with these people, with these ugly, messy people. 
It stains him. Uh, there's a movie called Wonder. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys have seen it. Um, we just rewatched it this past week. But uh, it's, it's a movie about this, uh, this boy who um, has this, this facial deformity. He's born with this facial deformity. He has, has all these uh, operations to kind of make him look kind of like other kids, but he still looks very, very different. And the movie is about him going to fifth grade with other kids for the first time. He's homeschooled up in the, until that point. And so it's about him trying to cope with, you know, how these other kids would treat him. And it's, 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 it's brutal. It's sad to watch because, like, as, as he goes, um, a lot of the kids stare at him, right? And a lot of the kids that, that you know, after they stare for just a little while, they, they, they don't want to look at him anymore. So they look away from him. And he's just feeling very alone. And, and there's this one scene where he's sitting in the cafeteria at a table all by himself. And one of the things that the kids have, you know, all this rumor that they, they spread around the whole school is that if you touch him or if he touches you, you'll get the plague, so you need to stay away from him. And uh, so he's sitting there all alone in the cafeteria at, at, this, at the lunch table, and this little girl named Summer, she looks over there and she sees him sitting all by himself, and she has compassion on him, and, and she's like, okay, forget it. And she picks up her tray, she gets up, she starts walking over to his table, and, and her whole table of friends, they're like, Summer, where are you, gonna, where are you going? You're going to get the plague! And she's like, I don't care. And she walks over there and she sits down, puts her tray right across from, from him. And she says, hi, my name's Summer. And she puts her hand out. And everybody's watching, you know. And he's like, aren't you afraid you're going to get the plague? And she's like, Augie, come on. And so he shakes her hand, right? And in that moment, in the mind of everyone else, as she shakes his hand, she, her reputation is stained, right? She receives the plague, in a sense. In a sense, that's kind of what happens here. As you read the genealogy of Jesus, as he is associated with all of these other sinners throughout the history of Israel, he gets the plague. His reputation is stained. But something happens in reverse as well. You know, for, in, in that movie, Wonder, as, as she reaches out and touches him, he feels a sense of significance and value to be noticed by somebody, to be loved by somebody, to be accepted by somebody. And, and in, this, in the same way, as, as Jesus is associated with these sinners, he might be stained by their reputation, but, but this is the son of David, the chosen one, right? And so for these people to be named in his genealogy, this is an incredible honor, isn't it? Doesn't it exalt them? It gives them a special place in, in the entire Bible, in the entire history. These people are associated with the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who would come and save his people from their sins. And this is just a picture of what Jesus does for us on the cross. You guys get that, right? As Jesus goes to the cross, this is what he does. When he dies on the cross, he takes the plague of our sin upon himself. And he dies for it. But at the same time, for those of us who have received him, for those of us who have gone limp and let him save us, he gives us honor, significance, status as children of God in whom he delights. This is the good news of the gospel right here. And so how do we prepare for that? Well, we prepare by, by you know, being thankful, getting ready to be more thankful. We prepare by, more than anything else, by, by counting on associating ourselves with him.
by letting our association, our association with him be the thing that defines us more than anything else. You know, this, this list of people, they can, be, they can be defined by all sorts of different things, uh, their actions in life, their, their heroic things, their, their failures. But, but after this, what can they define themselves as? As Jesus' relatives. That is what he invites us to do to define ourselves by him and what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us. Um, help us to think about how we can prepare to know you, to interact with you. We thank you for the good news here that, uh, that you are one who sees us. We pray that you would help us with the challenging news of the fact that you are the one who will surprise us. Help us not to miss who you are because you are so surprising. And Father, we pray that you would help us to, uh, to rest, to own our sin, to own our messiness, and to rest in the sufficiency of your son, the son of David. That we might know that we belong to you. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.